Okay, now I have power. Um, I'm Kevin Griffin. This is Dharma and Recovery. And uh, I don't usually play music, but um, I've been playing more music lately. I have a gig coming up, which, uh, you know, that's what us musicians call performances. Uh, but I, I sort of was thinking about... Um, ooh, that's weird. Don't like that pick. Um, I was thinking about uh, love today. Because, uh, you know, all right, this might be tricky. If I fall and break something, just, I do have insurance, Medicare actually, but, you know. Uh, but, um, and, and I was actually thinking about love this week and and I was thinking about love as a as an antidote not just to hate but to sadness that was it last one and um, and and I guess to um, love in the sense of of appreciating the world Appreciating the beauty of the world and all that uh, is here, um, you know, I think it's a, a it's a difficult time for people who are paying attention uh, to the world, <laughs> and um, you know, and, and it's easy to get caught up in um, in uh, you know negativity. I'm, I'm an expert at that, actually, and um, and and to um, you know, despair, and and uh, and so it just you know mindfulness, which we practice here, is really kind of a way of loving the world, of of loving the world by just really being with it, being intimate with it. So, you know, I I, I uh, thought of this song by Lucinda Williams, which I cannot I cannot do justice to as a singer. Uh, if you know her, she has a quite a very plaintive and touching voice. Um, but uh, you know, <laughs> how many people are familiar with Lucinda Williams at all? Okay, so so you'll pro- you might know this song because it's like the title cut, "Sweet Old World," and one of her albums. And and I I have to admit, you'll you'll detect if you pay close attention to the well, the chorus, pretty much, that it's actually about somebody who killed, committed suicide. But, and she's talking to him. And it was a dear, someone who was very close to him, her, obviously, because she wrote a few songs about him. I'm not sure if they were all in the same album. But, but she's, well, you'll see what, what she says, but I mean the idea that, um, that there was a lot that you missed. So I'm going to try to, See what I can if I can do justice to it. See what you lost. 
just when you left this world This sweet old world See what you lost when you left this world This sweet old world The breath from your own lips Touch of fingertips A sweet and tender kiss The sound of a midnight train Wearing someone's ring Someone calling your name Somebody so warm Cradled in your arms Didn't you think you were worth anything? See what you lost when you left this world This sweet old world See what you lost when you left this world This sweet old world Millions of us in love Promises made good Your own flesh and blood Looking for some truth And dancing with no shoes The beat, the rhythm and blues The pounding of your heart's drum Together with another one Didn't you think Anyone loved you Be what you lost when you left this world This sweet old world Lost when you left this world This sweet old world What you lost when you left this world This sweet old world You lost when you left this world This sweet old world This sweet old world This sweet old world This sweet old world world. So sweet, sweet world say don't applaud but thank you anyway so let's meditate maybe appreciate this world as it is I was sitting in a 
stable and comfortable posture. Coming into the sweet silence, the sweet stillness, sweet breath. heartbeat. The blood flowing through the body. See what we have in this sweet world. And connecting with the sensations of breath as the body breathes in and breathes out. We don't try to stop our thoughts in meditation. We do try to be present. Thoughts may come and go. Feelings come and go. Sensations. It's as though we are stepping back just a half step. We're observing our mind, our body, our experience, even as we are in it. We notice what's pleasant. Whether it's just the pleasant feeling of being in a a place where we're encouraged to be calm and peaceful and loving. We can also be aware of what's unpleasant. Perhaps there's some sensation in the body that's unpleasant or a memory, an emotion. Here we don't run from anything. We don't run toward anything. We allow it to be
bring this quality of openness, care and acceptance and interest. What is this mind? What is this body? What are these sense experiences? So much that we miss in the world. We're caught up in the past and the future. So much that we miss that's right here. restlessness and urge to make things just right, to fix things, to control them. And yet, things never are just right. So that struggle gets perpetuated. This practice encourages us to cease that chasing after comfort or perfection, control. To say, it's okay the way it is. The imperfection, the lack of control. It's okay. Stop fighting. Mindfulness is a challenge. It's not the easier, softer way. It doesn't provide us an escape or a spiritual bypass. It asks us to sit with whatever arises to learn to be non-reactive, to not run away from our feelings, not to require comfort. So in that way, it's really a training for life. 
life has challenges, life has pain. If we can't learn to be with those difficulties, then we'll always be running. We'll always be in conflict with reality. We keep coming back to your breath. It becomes an anchor to the present moment. All the places the mind goes. The breath is something simple. Always here. That we can land on. helps us to calm, calm the mind, calm the body. Our thinking tends to complicate things. The breath is the most simple thing. Helps us to step out of that complication and busyness. It's remarkable that we sit here still quietness yet look at your mind. Has it ever become still? Where does it go? What's it looking for?
So, um, yeah, happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, I was saying to someone today, I'm kind of a Valentine's Grinch, but that's pretty, if you know me at all, that's not surprising and predictable. But um, I, I wanted to say just a little about this class because, um, you know, with, with people that are dropping in that are particularly in, in early recovery, um, it, it's, it, it can be a little, it can be challenging, I think, to just drop into something like this. This isn't exactly a, you know, a, a beginner class. We're not, I, I'm not sort of uh, necessarily just sort of teaching meditation in, in sort of a, a systematic way. Um, I try to, I usually give more uh, specific guidance than I did tonight, but I kind of, the the music kind of got me going in a different flow. But, um, and and to, and particularly if you're not experienced with meditation, you just come and, and sit for 30 minutes, which is what we just did, in case you're wondering how long that was. Um, you know, that's, that's difficult, I think, uh, to sit still and, and uh, if you don't sort of know what you're doing and, you know, you're trying to listen to what the teacher's saying and you're, you know, trying to cope with sitting on these weird cushions or um, that can be a challenge, I think. Um, I want to just talk a little bit about what the practice that we do here, the, the primary practice and maybe the secondary practice as well. The, the primary practice we do here is mindfulness meditation. And and it, you know, derives from a very, you know, ancient Buddhist practice. Um, and, you know, we, talk, we also call it insight meditation, which kind of points to something else. Um, to, insight meditation kind of points to the, uh, the sort of goal of the practice is to develop insight. Mindfulness meditation kind of points to the the method, and, and mindfulness has become something of a buzzword in our culture, at least in certain, or at least in certain areas of our culture, and and I think it becomes, uh, you know, people get various ideas of what it means without necessarily getting much accuracy or in, or um, uh, you know, authentic uh, definition or information. And mindfulness, the word itself is a is a poor translation of a of a word from the Buddhist time, sati. Uh, and so, right away, we have a challenge, which is one of the challenges we run into trying to carry on this 2,500-year-old tradition, which is to try to understand what they were talking about in this language that's it's a dead language, the Pali language. So nobody even speaks it today. Uh, and so we're trying to, and, and uh, not just a, a dead language, but a, a culture that was completely different. So we, we discover as we start to study this early Buddhism that there were concepts that were not that really are foreign to us uh, that that we don't have words for them in English because we don't have those ideas in English uh, and so this very word mindfulness is a word that we we don't really uh, the, the word sati is a word that we don't have a word for 
because we don't we don't talk we don't know what it is we don't have that concept in our culture so so in our i will attempt to give you some idea of what it means it it, it certainly has something to do with our attention with paying attention to our experience it has something to do with not getting lost in thinking about the past and the future. But it doesn't mean stopping thinking. So that's like one of the subtle uh, aspects of it, that when we practice mindfulness, it's not that we're trying to you know, have a completely empty mind. But we're trying to be awake and aware. And so there are these areas of experience that we're trying to explore and be awake for. And the Buddha starts very simply by saying, be awake and aware of your body and your experience of your body, internally and externally. And, so, and he talks about be aware of the breath, but also like be aware of the way you're sitting, you know, the, the posture you're in, whether you're sitting or standing or walking or lying down. He says to be aware of, you know, all the sensations you have uh, and so that's a starting point, but it's not an end point. It's, it's le- kind of leading us somewhere. So then he asks us to kind of be aware of our, uh, not just our sensory experience, but the sort of uh, the way that our mind deals with our sense experience. So, you know, there's a loud sound and we don't like it. So we notice, oh, I don't like that sound. I mean, it sounds simplistic, but like, okay, so then I have a relationship to my experience. I'm starting to watch my mind. So there's this sort of reactivity that I start to watch. And then I start to notice my thought patterns. Where do my thoughts go? What makes my thoughts go in those places? What, you know, um, and, and in my own exploration of my own mind, what are the types of thoughts I usually have and where do I get stuck? And then, you know, where do I get stuck and how do I create suffering with my own mind? Now we're getting somewhere, right? I'm being aware of my mind and I'm seeing how my mind creates my life, creates my world in a way. My interpretation of the world is all through my mind, right? So, So this is all about being mindful, you know, be, being aware. That allows us then to respond differently to the world, to not be caught in habitual reactions, to not jump away from, from the things that are unpleasant and run away from them or try to suppress them, to not try to just hold on to things that we like because we start to see that that whole process of pushing away or, or grabbing onto is actually uh, it causes this uh, tension, this frustration, because we can never keep away everything that's unpleasant, and we can never hold on to everything that is pleasant. So we get we see that we get in this cycle of grasping and pushing away that's creating what the Buddha called dukkha, suffering, uh, un, a sense of unsatisfactoriness. It's never enough. It's never right. Frustration. Dukkha is a kind of frustration with, with the reality. So when we see that, when we see that we're doing that, 
through our mindfulness, we see this process happening. Then, because we are awake and aware, we're actually able to respond differently. Not get into this fight with the world. Not get into this having to push things away that are somewhat unpleasant or cling on to the things that are pleasant. You know, Not have to you know, uh, get loaded every time we get angry or uh, you know, find ourselves just enraptured with a certain drug. And just, I need to feel like that all the time, right? This is the extreme version of that, of what the Buddha was talking about. One of my uh, Buddhist recovery teacher friends says, Buddhism is the earliest recovery program, the original recovery program. It's, it's, it's confronting those very things. And all of this starts with this simple act of applying attention to my present moment experience. Because all of this happens in the present moment. Pushing away, grasping onto, all happens in the moment. If I'm, and, and I'm trying to train my attention to be awake. Because when I'm asleep, what I do, you know, sleep, the term sleepwalking, right? Well, what's happening in sleepwalking? You're just following, you know, ingrained, conditioned habits without reflecting on their effect. So coming back to mindfulness meditation, this is why it's not easy. (laughs) And it's not something you drop in and it's like, oh, so great, I went to Spirit Rock and I just was like so chill and, you know, it was groovy and whatever. I guess people, chill, I guess. I'm trying to think of what my daughter would say. Like, anyway, she wouldn't say groovy, definitely. Anyway, you know, you, you come here and you're like, I don't know, those cushions were kind of uncomfortable and you know, I, my back started hurting and I really couldn't get it. I don't know what I was supposed to be doing. I was trying to meditate, but I couldn't. I couldn't meditate because my thoughts kept going on. And so that's like you didn't understand what was supposed to be happen- what you were, what we were doing, which is uh, kind of brings me back also to saying, you know, because this isn't really an introductory class, people can come in and sort of not know that that's the conversation we're having. And you come and you go, well, that was kind of weird. I don't know if I'm going to go there. I might go to the Sufi dancing next week instead. You know, uh, so every once in a while I feel I should explain what this is and kind of how it works. It's a process. And it, and and this this process of being aware of your body, noticing your sense experience, your reactivity, watching your mind, and responding differently isn't something that happens in a one-time thing where you've dropped into spirit rock. It's something that takes time to develop. It's a training. We call it a practice. You meditate every day. You go on retreats. You know, you, you work this. You, you study it. You read books. You, know, you listen to teachers. You practice, practice, practice. And gradually, it becomes ingrained in you. And you become trained, and you become a, a mindfulness practitioner. Uh, and so, it's not for everybody because everybody's not willing to put in that work, and everybody isn't uh, willing to engage in that way. But I will say that um, I think it's you know at one point in the in the sutta on mindfulness, the main sutta on mindfulness, the Buddha says it's the one way. To wake up, you know, that if you want to wake up, you got to go this way. 
it's okay, you don't have to wake up. If you'd rather sleepwalk, that might be pleasant, you know, for a while. Eventually you'll walk into a door or fall down some steps, which can really hurt. Um, but, uh, you know, there's not really a lot of other ways to uh, kind of create this transformation that this practice is pointing to. Uh, and I, it's you know it's an adult practice you know it's not it's uh, we teach it to kids but I mean in the sense it's an adult practice in that when people come to this practice and and embrace it it's usually because they've tried other ways to find happiness in their lives uh, and it's one of the reasons why I think it's great for addicts because we've Addicts know all this stuff. They know all about trying to control the world, trying to fix themselves, trying to fix everybody else. And they, when they come into recovery, it's because they've realized that doesn't work and they're looking for another way. Um, but once you find this way and once you embrace it, you know there really isn't any question that this is, this is the most valuable thing you can bring into your life. So that's just a little joyful introductory information. Let's take a about a 10-minute break and we'll come back for a, a talk about Valentine's Day. going to be funny. For my next number, I'm going to do something called gong. How'd you like that? Good, good song? Can I, should I copyright it? Uh, okay. Maybe it wasn't funny. Um, Gabriella, the uh, manager, has just reminded me to remind you that when we're done for the evening, if you could put all the cushions and zabutons and everything back in the closets, that would be great. And, uh, you know, it's just, that's what we do in the recovery world. We take care of spaces that we use. So thank you for that. Uh, and on the, on the, uh, In the area of announcements, I have a couple of upcoming events. One is, uh, I mentioned a music show that I'm going to be the opening act, you know, just working my way up. (laughs) Just a a poor opening act. Uh, March 21st at the Phoenix Theater in Petaluma. Not really far from here, right? I mean, as things things go. Um, Opening for MC Yogi. 
uh, some people know who MC Yogi is? I had to look him up on YouTube, and he kind of uh, he, sound, he is what he sounds like. He's a rapping yogi, uh, and and pretty fun and good. I mean, you know, I, I was impressed. Very positive. And so my band, which they're calling Laughing Buddha, just because I have an album called Laughing Buddha, every time I perform somewhere, it has a different. The band has a different name. Um, I'm playing acoustically because uh, after like 50 years of playing rock and roll, my ears don't really like electric guitars anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so I have an acoustic band and uh, with bass and percussion, and and I've added a violin for this show, and um, and an incredible singer uh, who I played with many years ago in an Afrofusion band, and. Uh, He's just got a beautiful voice, and he's singing my songs, and and uh, he sings them a lot better than I do. So, what can I say? So, if you're interested, grab one of these and come to that show. Um, the other thing, more in line with what we're doing here, uh, an insight meditation retreat. There's flyers out there. I have a few up here too. If you want to grab one, uh, April 18th to the 25th, so a week-long retreat. Uh, at Black Mountain Retreat Center, which is in Casadero, if you know where that is, you're cool, uh, up a little ways uh, in Sonoma County. Um, and uh, I'm co-teaching with Jill Satterfield and uh, Walt Opie, and also we have a great Qigong teacher. Uh, it's just a regular silent retreat. It's not a particularly recovery retreat, but most of the teachers are in recovery, so it'll slip in there. Um, and we chose this place, we found this place because it was the most affordable place I could find to ha- to teach a retreat. Uh, and I'm often frustrated with how expensive retreats are, but we were able to f- find a place where for a week, for dorms, which, and of course meals are included, $525, you won't find many retreats on the West Coast for that price. So if if you're only, it doesn't, you know, if all you care about is the money part of it and you don't care that it's me, then should come but if you do care that it's me then decide based on that I don't know what I'm saying as usual okay so I think that covers it if you're going to be in LA in two weeks I'm teaching you a weekend retreat there uh, my website is kevingriffin.net you can always find my stuff my events on there what did I do with the gong thing oh there it is okay so I was thinking it's Valentine's Day. Now, and I was looking ahead to when I was teaching. It's going to be Valentine's Day. But then I was like, but it's the second step. And I haven't really been talking enough about the steps in here because, you know, that's kind of one of the themes that, that I cover here. So I was like, okay, steps, Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day, steps. So I decided I had to bring love together with step two. So we'll see how that works. So I want to start by telling you a story from the time of the Buddha. In in those days, as as today, uh, the monks uh, during the rainy season would... uh, have a retreat for three months because it wasn't practical for them 
to do, they often just kind of wandered and went from village to village and begged for alms and gave teachings. But during the rainy season, they, you know, it was too muddy and messy and to, to be traveling. So they would stay in one place. And uh, during this particular rainy season, a group of the monks came to the Buddha and said, we want to go have our range retreat. Where do you suggest we go? And he suggested a forest that was not far away from where he was staying. So the monks went to this forest, a beautiful, ancient, primal forest in northern India. And and they got there and they thought, ah, oh, this is perfect, it's quiet here. It's near enough to a village that we can get food when we need it, but it's far enough away that they won't that villagers won't bother us, it'll it'll be quiet. Uh there's there's water nearby, a source of water. And so they each sort of chose a tree because they would kind of sit under a tree that you know and the, that was the Buddha's instruction, sit beneath the tree. So they would, you know, take their little bag and in a bowl and they would set set it beside the tree and then they would set, set it up to meditate under the tree. And, the, and these monks were, were very devoted as, as Buddhist monks are today uh, and, and would often practice uh, late into the evening, late into the night. So the first night they th- said, well, let's, let's really stay up tonight and get get our retreat started strong. We'll all meditate all night. Well, everything's going fine for the first few hours. They're sitting meditation and then they would walk, do walking meditation, just walking back and forth very mindfully and they're settling in and having very nice meditations when all of a sudden they started to hear some eerie sounds kind of off in the distance, weird like, sounds like kind of spooky. They're like, "What is that? What's that sound?" And then they heard noises in the in the brush. They're starting to their meditation is starting to get a little disturbed. You're trying to sit still. You know, they're supposed to be monks. They're not supposed to be disturbed. You know, just, it's just noise. Just be mindful of the sound. Another noise. <laughs> you know, another sounds. Then a smell, a disgusting smell wafts through their forest. And they're, <laughs> what is that? Horrible. We have to keep meditating. The Buddha said this was a good place. Oh, God. Finally, the, the night passes. The air clears. Things quiet down. The sun comes up. They get together. Like, that was strange. Like, what was going on last night? I don't, I don't know what was going on. Then, so they, well, it'll be okay. Let's stay for another night. So, so they continue their practice through the day. They go on their alms round to the village, they get food, they come back, they're meditating through the day. The next night, it's worse. The the sounds are louder and closer. The smells are just repulsive and pervasive. It it sounds like there's monsters in the bushes. Finally, they're just in complete 
fear and, and trembling. The meditation is gone. There's no concentration. There's no mindfulness. It's just uh, you know, horror. Uh, but they, they make it through the night and then pack up their belongings and go back to the Buddha. They say, you know, Master, you know, is there another place we could go to meditate? This forest you sent us to, no good. Not, not, it was, there were terrible noises and smells. And it, was, it was horrible. I, there's, there's something going on there. But it said, ah, yes. There are some tree fairies that live in that forest. I forgot to mention that. And they tend to be territorial, shall we say. There's actually several families that live there. Didn't you notice? Oh, well, I I don't know. They were treated. I I didn't see anything. No, 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 you can't see them. But, you you know, you you know they're there. You sense them. You didn't sense them. Well, uh, no, Master, I, I, I suppose I'm not as attuned as you. Yes, very likely, actually. Uh, so this is what you must do. You must go back to that. No, no, don't tell us to go back there. Please, please. We don't. You will go back to the forest. You will go back to the forest and you will give them love. You will radiate kindness to the, to the tree fairies, this family that lives in that forest. And he says, are you sure? Yes. And then he gives them a teaching, which has been handed down to us now that we know as the Metta Sutta, the, the Discourse on Loving Kindness. He says, radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Sustain this recollection, whether sitting or standing, walking or lying down, free from drowsiness. Continue this. Keep sending this. Wish them happiness. Wish them safety. Okay. If you say so. Now the Buddha had a presence that was, you know, when he suggested you do something, it was hard to say no. So indeed, the, the monks nervously kind of went back in the forest. Uh, we're back. Are you guys still here? Yeah, you're still here. So they started to do this meditation. Love, sending love. Concentrating on their heart. Spreading it out. Spreading it to the trees. Spreading it to the fairies, to the beings, to the village nearby. Outward across the country. Outward into the skies. Into the universe radiating kindness they they started to feel this great openness this great fulfillment this richness coming from the heart just as though they were dissolving into love and sure enough the fairies the tree fairies the spirits that lived in in the forest who were all set to start up on their routine and drive them out ah they felt it because they too were very attuned they felt, and they were, this is kind of nice. Oh, maybe we'll let them stay. And they started 
just enjoying and sitting in the trees and just enjoying the love that was coming to them, the wafting through them, waves of love coming to them. They said, you know, this is so nice. I don't want these monks to go away. Let's, and they, some of them took form and they set up around the forest and kept people away to protect the monks so that the monks would stay and would be safe to practice. So we've come to understand through this teaching, through this history, and it is recorded as history, uh, whether we fully accept it or not in our scientific era. Uh, We've come to understand that the Buddha was teaching the power of love to overcome fear. That when we can let go of that fear and bring love, that we can conquer that fear, that we can conquer the hatred that's coming toward us. So step two says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So we might say that the monks were driven crazy by the tree spirits and that by practicing loving kindness they were restored to sanity. So in some way, uh, you know, the monks uh, were trusting in the power of love and that the Buddha was teaching them the power of love. So that's Valentine's Day in step two. I want to um, talk more generally about step two, though, because uh, I don't, I haven't been, as I said, I haven't been getting into the steps in the traditional way that I have over the years uh, so much lately in this class and because I know we have some new people and because uh, you know we all can benefit from reviewing these ideas. I, I want to talk about this step and, and it might even connect back to love. Uh, you never know. If you follow... Uh, you know, if you follow along uh, with this, any spiritual path that tends to lead back to love. So, when you first hear step two, if you're fortunate enough to hear it and to not shut down, if you've been raised in a, a theistic culture or and a particular religion that posits a, a God, then very likely when you hear uh, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, you're very likely to interpret that as meaning that uh, if you believe in God, that God will get you sober. Yeah. And, and I think that in some ways... That's maybe kind of what the step was uh, saying. 
what the founders of AA who wrote, wrote the steps were kind of saying. That uh, they started to believe that God could, could take care of them. And, but for, for people who don't uh, sort of adhere to that kind of belief system, uh, that can really uh, be a discordant idea. And, and there can be, you know, many people who come to the steps, particularly today, but I think over, over the history of the 12 steps, have kind of reached step two and step three and, and turned away and felt that they, they couldn't work these steps because they didn't believe in God. Uh, but I've come to see the steps uh, as not really depending upon uh, any, uh, a God of the sort that's sort of posited in, in Western religion in, in the Abrahamic tradition. It, for those who aren't familiar with that term, the Abrahamic religion refers to Abraham who, uh, who is seen as uh, kind of a founder of all three of the you know, religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And I should probably say put them in the order, historical order, which is Judaism, Christianity, Islam. That's how they arose. But they, they all look back to Abraham. Uh, and um, so they're called Abrahamic for that reason. Um, nonetheless, so, so if we kind of take this idea of an Abrahamic God out of the step, we can ask ourselves what, what the step is is kind of trying to accomplish. What's it, what is it saying? Well, it said that we came to believe. Let's take the power out of it. it maybe, what if we just said the step is saying we came to believe we could be restored to sanity. Uh, you know, we, we could, of course, question whether we're insane uh, whether alcoholism and drug addiction is, uh, you know, a condition of insanity, but but let's just say so. Let's maybe calm that word down a little bit and say we came to believe that we could recover. Okay, something a little less, uh, you know, not such a big deal. So. Now we've kind of, now we've, we've put this, by putting it in these terms, we see that, for one thing, this isn't so much about the higher power, but it's about my belief. And that, which is where I think the real problem lies for us as addicts, is do we believe that we can recover? And we might even more simply say, do we believe that we can stop using? Do we believe we can stop drinking and using and that it's worth doing, right? Because we might know like, yeah, I could stop, but I'm miserable. And I have a family member who's like that, claims that, you know, they can stop, but just miserable once, once that happens. And so... This step is saying, you know, there's, we're 
being asked to believe that we can we can heal, that we can recover, that we can have a life. So let's look at what's standing in the way of that belief. The I think there's a couple of things that stand in the way of, of believing that. One is the sense that we are in some you know in some way uh, flawed that we can't you know we can't survive without uh, our drug or alcohol or whatever our addiction is and that that's um, you know I think we have to really question that kind of belief that we because it suggests that if we look around and see that millions of people have recovered we're saying that I am uniquely different from those people in that I have not I haven't got the capacity to recover that's a really egotistical statement it turns out you know I'm so specially I'm so specially screwed up that nothing can help me that's Pretty, if you know any, if we really reflect on that, we realize, am I that special? You know, and you know, you go to a few meetings and you see people who you hear their story and you realize they were worse off than me, and they're recovered. So you know, what, one of the places we kind of learn about this is by by being around other around people in recovery. Why it's so important to see those models. It, you know, from a Buddhist viewpoint, addiction happens through cause and effect. You drink and use or do whatever your addictive behavior is over and over, and it becomes, it first becomes a habit, and then it becomes an addiction, right? And it just, it, it becomes an addiction through a very simple process of repetition, right? I mean, that's what addiction is. You do it over and over until you're stuck in it. You're stuck in that rut. And when we're in that rut, as I said, it can feel as if there's no way out of this rut. But with the Buddhist principle of cause and effect says, if you can cause something to happen by repetition, you can uncause it by unrepetition. Right? I mean, that's just simple logic. You know, how else is addiction created but through repetition? And so on the fundamental practical and physical level addiction is stopped by stopping the behavior now that's not the end of your problem we know you know there might still be a craving there might still be trauma that's unhealed there might be wounds and lots of stuff but the the physical addiction can be broken by not doing it the same applies to the mental states much of the the uh, negative thought patterns and and uh, difficult and painful uh, mental patterns when when I was talking about when I was describing mindfulness that when we start to see that part of why I'm so unhappy or part of why I'm addicted is because I have this belief system that uh, you know I'm not okay. This circles back to love because I'm not okay is basically saying I hate myself. And when we start to examine these things, just like the delusion that I can't stop 
drinking and using, I see that these, this is also just another belief system that's just conditioned. And it's conditioned by, once again, repetition. Now, oftentimes this, this starts in childhood and others start it in us, right? We get the way we're treated as children can often kind of create like a, a you know, the, it's the beginnings of this, this belief system. But as adults, as we, we become aware, we can start to undo that. That doesn't mean that you're never going to have negative thoughts about yourself. But when we start to apply mindfulness, we can start to be aware and catch ourselves over and over. Catch, there I go again. There's that story. And this is what I was talking about with mindfulness. We start to see these patterns of thought. Right? Well, came to believe. The reason that we need to come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity is because we, come, we need to come to believe something different from what we've been believing. We're all, we're all walking around believing stuff. And there's a lot of stuff we believe about ourselves. And this practice is largely about undoing those belief systems, uprooting them, and, and first you know, looking at them. And it's not easy. It's not pretty. This is one of the reasons why I call meditation a, a kind of inventory, a meditative inventory. We're look, we, we sit and we watch the thoughts come up and we start to see ourselves. And it's just like doing an inventory. It's not written down and it's not about the past. It's about what's here right now. It's like a present moment inventory. of This is what's arising. We start to see this, but when we have consciousness with it, we're able to talk back, we're able to push back, we're able to bring in another belief system to engage it that says, I'm not the worst person in the world. And maybe I can even cultivate love towards myself, which is what the loving kindness meditation in its you know, developed form encourages us to do, to start to actually say to ourselves, you know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be safe. And what, what we're saying in that is I care about myself. You know, I care about my own suffering. It's sort of an odd stance that we take with loving kindness meditation because we're talking to ourselves. You know, and, and you know, what, what that even means, I can't explain. Like who is talking to what? Or what is talking to whom? I don't know. But it, it happens. It happens. We can do it, right? I mean, this is one of the things we discover very quickly in mindfulness, that we're able to be aware of what's going on in our mind and we can actually make choices about it. We realize that what's happening in our mind, is, they're not facts, right? One of the sayings, love in the program is feelings aren't facts. The other thing we could also say is thoughts are not facts either. Thoughts are ideas that arise in the mind, but with awareness we can actually challenge them, question them, examine them. And we can actually say, well, that's not really true, is it? And then we can sort of reflect on, well, what is true? Well, it's hard to say what's exactly true in every way about everything, but we can kind of say, I'm not a total 
asshole, you know. That's what my mind, or somehow in my heart, I have this feeling, this sort of cloud over me that's like, I'm just a horrible person. I don't know if anybody here has ever had a thought like that. And when we surface that, when we shine a light on it, and then we bring sanity to it, we kind of go, well... I know I've done some bad things and some stupid things and some mistakes, but, you know, I've been nice to people. I've worked hard at certain things. I've loved my dog, you know. I, I've, tr- I've tried, you know. And, you know. and here you are at a meditation center on Valentine's Day, you know. Like, there must be something good in me if I'm trying to make something of myself, if I'm trying to recover, or if I'm trying to become more wise or more peaceful or more loving. So, okay, I'll put over here, there's some negative things. But then, to be honest, if I want to be truthful about it, I see, you know, I have some good qualities too. So now, things are starting to change, right? The belief system is changing. Sanity is returning. If sanity is just seeing the world as it is, you know, someone who's insane, like, thinks the world is, you know, that you guys are all aliens, or, you know, insanity is, is a misperception of reality, in some sense. Don't quote me on that, because there's probably some flaw in that logic, but I'll just, you know, for, for the purposes of this, you know, conversation that that we are starting to become sane because we're starting to see have a more balanced more realistic view of ourselves and of the world not perfect not not perfectly awful you know um, and out of that then and and then even as I was talking about having this ability to kind of step back and see you know this this imperfect but striving to be better person really deserves to be loved. Or if that's too strong a word, deserves to be cared for, deserves some kindness. And this is the kind of spirit of loving kindness, of of practicing loving kindness for ourselves. And indeed, what what now has come to be called self-compassion. Seeing, well, you know, we look out at the world and we see the suffering in the world. Our hearts open to the people that we see suffering in the world, to the hunger, the poverty, the inequality. But we can also look at ourselves and see the pain in ourselves. And in the same way, go, wow, this, this being sitting right here also needs care. How, how can I be kind to this, to myself? And our practice and our program are in some ways about learning to be kind to ourselves, about learning to love ourselves and learning to love others. So that, that functions on very simple, basic levels. You know, I was talking about the foundations of mindfulness. We start by being kind to our bodies, by not putting intoxicants into them, right? And then we start to be kind to our minds by not taking, letting our minds just tear us down all the time 
We start to bring kindness into our minds. And then it turns out that by doing that, we actually open up and start to see the world around us more because the, the self-hatred is a very, um, like, it's so powerfully inward turning that we don't have much energy left for the rest of the world. When we're, when we're focused so much on negativity about ourselves, it, it, it closes us off in a lot of ways. When we open up, when we open our own hearts and start to care for ourselves, we, we start to see the world more clearly around us and we, and we start to care even more about others and want to help others having experienced this, this uh, transformation, this spiritual awakening. We, we actually want to help other people. And then, of course, we discover, as all spiritual paths show, that when we think of others instead of ourselves, that there's great joy that comes from that, great freedom that comes from taking the attention off ourselves. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho, one of the most uh, senior and great living Buddhist monks, uh, an, an American who, who studied in Thailand for many, many years and has started many monasteries and uh, you know, ordained many monks. He, he has a very simple uh, phrase where he says, whenever I think about myself, I get depressed. And he's been a monk for 50 years. You know, I mean, if, he can, if that's what happens to him, you know, uh, it just speaks volumes, you know, that, that self-obsession that we know so much about. So we're coming to, coming to believe that we can change, coming to believe that we can heal and that we don't really depend on some being up in the sky to do that for us. In Buddhist terms, we depend upon the law of karma. The law of karma says actions have results, that there are three types of actions there are outward actions we call deeds, right? This is the most obvious form of actions. But there's also speech. We create karma, we create effects by the outward actions we take, by the things we say. And, but maybe most important, we create karma by, with our thoughts. So those are the three forms of karma, thoughts, words, and deeds. And the way we heal is by transforming those. And we have to make the effort, right? We have to take the steps. We have to make, take the outward actions to go to meetings and to not pick up. You know, we have to learn to uh, interact with people uh, social, you know, or socially by sp- you know, speaking, using our words skillfully. And then we have to learn to think differently about ourselves and about others, to not dwell in our resentments, uh, not just not to dwell in self-hatred, but not to dwell in hatred of others. So this is the healing path. Uh, it, it's, it's embodied in the whole of the Buddhist path and the whole of the 12 steps. But this is, this is the essence of it that, that really is set into motion in step two. So I'll, I'll say that if we want to have a higher power, we might consider love to be our higher power. So we might say, we came to believe that love could restore us to sanity. 
that's an interesting thing to try carrying around with you for a while. What would that mean? You know, how, would, how would that affect your life if you, if you trusted in love to, to be your healing force, your healing power? So, so I have a few, a few minutes left uh, before we'll close. Uh, and if anybody would like to chime in or ask a question, I'd love to hear from you. We have some microphones here. So uh, someone raised their hand right beside you. Uh, up, up, right there. Just speak loudly. So we agree. So, yeah. So, would there be agreement? Uh, I took many years ago when I was in college and undergrad two theology classes. And basically, I found out that all my hobbies love yourself and love others. And that's it. The rest is just really your thing in Thank you. Sweet. Yeah, it's interesting. When I would hear that when I was a kid, God is love, I thought what it meant was that this guy up in the sky was loving. But then if I just take the guy out of the sky and just make it, oh, love, if I say instead love is God, that like creates a really different meaning to it. To me, oh, oh, really? That's it. I see. Uh, you know, turn your will and your life over to the care of love. You know, that's an interesting third step. You know, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with love. Rich. Uh, yeah, that's true, right? And then he said a bunch of stuff that I didn't understand about, you, you know, what, what, what's the, the rest of the lyric? Like, I'm always thinking, that would be a nice song to sing, and then I start going, there's nothing you can do that can't be done. There's nothing you can sing that can't be sung. There's nothing you can see that you can't learn how to be in time. Nothing you can be that you can't learn how to be in time or something. I'm like, what? 
I think you lost track there, John. I, I think I think he could have made. I mean, I hate to you know criticize John Lennon because like you know it's kind of like criticizing James Joyce or something. But I think he could have come through better with the rest of those lyrics. Uh, yeah, is it, is it working? Yeah. Um, so um, early on, uh, when you beginning tonight, um, you you mentioned that <clears throat> um, mindfulness might not help out in terms of current events. I did something like that. Let's run the tape back. I want to hear that. Yeah. Well, anyhow, what's what struck me is that I used to be, you know, the, kind of the the angry guy who would watch the news and be drinking and getting angrier the more I drank at, at, the, at the news. <laughs> right. Um, and I don't do that anymore. You don't watch and, the news? Or you... No, I watch, <laughs> I watch the news and, and certainly there's things just that are disturbing. Drink but, and quiet in the backyard. But my, my anger doesn't um, drive me to drink. Yeah, well, that's good. You know, so. But if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, as they say. Right. I mean, I don't mean to, you know, go off on a negative track, but, you know. Yeah. And then I just wanted to mention that, yes, indeed, the the singer that's going to be singing with you is just great. Yeah, he's unbelievable. He's a beautiful voice. Thank you. Thank you for that plug. He he was at the show we did in uh, December. In fact, one of the organizers. I don't know what your role is, but you're always hanging around. You know, you're like the Derek Taylor of the. You know. That's an inside Beatles. You know, you got to know your Beatles history. Ah, look, somebody on the other end. You're getting your steps in. I hope you've got your Fitbit on there. You'll be getting lots of. Thank you. Um, I really like the discussion of step two with the emphasis on self-belief. Yeah. Um, certainly it's been talked about a lot in the sort of coming to believe part as being an active process. It doesn't have to have happened yet. And then much discussion about uh, a power greater than, than ourself and what that can be. Mm-hmm. But um, I really like the emphasis on the self-belief. Um, but also... Step two and Valentine's Day is really perfect for me. Step two talks about sanity and Valentine's Day is about romantic relationships. (laughs) A.K.A. insanity. Yeah, I mean, insane, like you said, insane is a little bit strong of of a term, but if there's anything at at this point in my recovery, also just just talk about recovery and what that is, like as separate from relationships is a little strange to me. I mean, it's like... everything that I do in recovery is to keep from going back to that life. But essentially the, the, the main thrust of that is how I can relate to other people. Of course, that's a lot of self work. Um, so it has to do with me, but I mean, that is like the sort of the main thrust of recovery for me. Um, I don't know if I have a question. That's okay. You don't have to have a question. It's great to hear people sharing. Because I, th- I think you're right that, that 
maybe in some way, you know, we don't sort of explicitly, the steps don't make so explicit that that recovery really is a, a group effort or that it's about our, it's a lot about our relationships. I mean, when you get to, I guess when you get to four through nine, you know, you are, it is all about that. Um, but, um, and the fact that, you know, the core ritual in recovery is meetings, like being with other people also kind of suggests that there's this is something about uh, connection and, and healing the healing our uh, relationships and and healing our capacity to be in any kind of relationship. Certainly, that was once I broke the habits of drinking and using the the main work of the first ten years of recovery was um, about you know being able to be in a an intimate relationship in a healthy way and then now the last 25 years have been about trying to be in an intimate relationship in a healthy way so <laughs> uh, it's called marriage by some people uh, so I'm going to play one more song and then we'll, we can go. So I figured as long as I've got the guitar. And so this is um, my, uh, my adaptation of uh, the, the Buddha's words on loving kindness. So I told you about how the sutta was, was uh, originated. And that, and that story I told, uh, I, I didn't really embellish it, actually. It, it's, it's a pretty, pretty direct... Um, telling of what's in the commentaries on the suttas. Um, but uh, this, the, the um, sutta has this phrase that, that really, when I wrote this song, my daughter was very young, uh, just uh, an infant or a toddler. And, um, and I thought, and sort of, I wanted to take this, one line from the sutta and kind of build the song around it. So the opening line is is that it, it's actually in the middle of the sutta. So this doesn't quite go directly through the sutta. But. And as far as I know, they didn't have Vasanova at the time of the Buddha. So. Even as a mother. Protects with her life her child, her only child. So, with a boundless heart, should one cherish every single living being, radiating kindness over the entire world spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths outward and unbounded freed from hatred and ill will one should sustain this recollection 
And even as a father Protects with his life his child His only child So with a boundless heart Should one cherish every single Living being Radiating kindness over the entire world Spreading upwards to the skies And downwards to the dead Outwards and unbounded Freed from hatred and ill will One should sustain this recollection Wishing Gladness and in safety May all beings be at ease Whatever living beings there may be Whether they are weak or strong Omitting not a single one The great or the mighty Medium, short or small The seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease, at ease, may all beings be at ease. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart, uh, should one cherish every single living being. Kindness over the entire world Spreading upwards to the skies And downwards to the dead Outward and unbounded Defeat from hatred One should sustain this recollection One should sustain this sustain this recollection thank you all for coming tonight and uh, I'll be back again next month second Friday hope to see you then Uh, thank you and let's uh, put everything away I should bring a bell I guess doesn't feel right if you don't end with a bell (laughs) 